0: This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space. Hello, everyone.
1: I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Michael Posner, the Jerome Kohlberg Professor of Ethics and Finance at NYU's Stern School of Business. He's the director of the Center for Business and Human Rights at the school. Prior to joining NYU Stern, Professor Posner served in the Obama administration as Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. From 1978 to 2009, he led Human Rights First, a New York-based human rights advocacy organization. Professor Posner is recognized As a leader and expert in advancing a rights-based approach to national security, challenging the practice of torture, combating discrimination, and advancing refugee protection. In 1998, he led a delegation to the Rome Conference at which the statute of the International Criminal Court was adopted. Throughout his career, he's been a prominent voice in support of human rights, protections, in global business operations as well. President Posner, welcome to the show.
2: My pleasure. Nice to be here. So let's start with your
1: background and uh, any defining moments that led you to pursue a career as a human rights advocate.
2: Well, I guess a couple of things. Uh, I grew up in the American Midwest in Chicago, uh, in far away from things going on in most of the world. But I came from what I considered a sort of privileged position. My father is a lawyer. He was involved in public service and I always wanted to do something in the public sphere. I wanted to use the law degree. I went to law school, California, and I wanted to use law as a tool of social change, but I thought I would do it in the United States. And then in my junior year, my second year, rather, of law school, uh, I uh, I got a fellowship, an internship with an organization in Geneva looking at Uganda's human rights situation. I didn't know anything about Uganda. I couldn't have found it on a map. Um, but I all of a sudden realized that there was this massive loss of life going on, uh, expulsion of the uh, South Asian community. Idi Amin was the dictator in charge and one night he had a dream and the dream was to expel all the Asian population. And it sort of opened my eyes to the fact that there were things going on in the world that I wasn't paying attention to, so that really inspired me to say, you know, I've got, you know, I've got this privileged position in a country where, you know, I'm protected, Uh, lots of people aren't, and so I sort of made a commitment uh, at that moment that I really wanted to take a look at uh, human rights and find ways to be helpful uh, in advancing that agenda. The center at
1: NYU Stern is quite unique. Uh, Tell us more about it. How how did you uh, think about uh, its foundation and what what, what inspired you?
2: Well, I guess I would step back and say that, you know, the work of the human rights uh, world historically has been very focused on government abuses. Idi Amin is a classic example, a dictator attacking his own people. Um, and increasingly in the last, I would say 20 or 25 years, it's become more and more obvious to me and lots of other people that governments are often weak. Um, they're certainly often also autocratic and not helpful. They're part of the problem to be sure, but they often don't have the ability or capacity or resources to deal with the problems that our, our current world faces. This is what I call a governance gap. You, and what you have is very big in, a, in now a world that's uh, increasingly globalized economically. You have very big companies operating in very weak states, unwilling or unable to protect their own people. And so it doesn't make sense to ignore both the uh, problems that some big companies are causing, but also their potential to be part of the solution. And so... When I worked in the State Department, it was clear to me that the US government at least, this was in the Obama administration, didn't really have the tools to figure out how to regulate US-based companies. I think that's true of most governments. You promote exports, maybe you do some public-private partnerships, but the accountability, the kind of oversight of corporate behavior outside of your borders is is sort of ignored. So I sort of grabbed onto that and created a unit in the State Department looking at business and human rights. And I would ask people, I would say to people, you know, we have, we live in a world where the assumption is a bunch of governments sit around a table. They have their flags and their placards and we're facing a world, one where there are a number of groups uh, like ISIS or Al Qaeda, they may have flags, but they're certainly not sitting around our table. They want to destroy the world of states. You also have a range of problems, pandemic, that we're facing today, or natural disasters, um, where uh, governments don't have the capacity, and their are NGOs doing all the civil society groups, Medecins Sans Frontieres, the Red Cross, out there doing things that are so important. And then when you look at the global economy, of the I, I always compare... Gross domestic product and revenue, and if you use that as a measure, half of the biggest economies in the world are not states, they're private companies. So Walmart's annual revenue now of over $500 billion is more or less equivalent to the GDP of Belgium or Argentina. It's the 25th largest economy in the world. So I kept saying to people, why do we have an ambassador to Benin and we don't have an ambassador to Walmart? You know, these are actors on the global stage and we got to figure this out. So when I came out of government, I said, I really want to work on this. I came to NYU and I thought, you know, the place to do this, I want to be in the home court of business. So I thought I want to go to a business school and try to see if we can imbue this into business education and also be a place where businesses come and engage on these subjects.
1: That that's fascinating. So so the declaration, or or rather the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, was framed largely by governments, and it's a precious document. Has given us a baseline against which to measure a state's moral conduct. Uh, How do you see the rapid growth of various forms of populism and nationalisms across the world impacting how we think about
2: the Universal Declaration? Well, you know uh, the period after World War II was so dominated by a desire to prevent um, a recurrence of both conflict, we'd had two world wars in the 20th century, tens of millions of people killed, and to address issues of development and issues, issues of human rights. So the UN was created in 1945, and those were the three core objectives of The charter of the founders of the UN to promote peace, to prevent conflict, to promote development—all the, you know, uh, uh, multilateral development agencies, UNDP, and others created—and and and to prevent another Holocaust. And so there was a kind of coming together, at least among um, a number of states that were leaders of at that time, to say this is the agenda going forward, and it held for quite a long time. We've made progress, I would say, in all of those areas. We could talk about that. Clearly, there's always going to be fighting. There's always going to be under lack of development in places. And there's always going to be human rights violations. But those issues are on the, on the agenda, and there's a strong um, uh, effort to address them. I think what we've seen happen in the last 10 or 15 years is that too many people feel that they're outside of this grand bargain, that there's a a sense that somehow the world is passing them by. And a lot of it is economic inequality. We see this growing disparate um, world, economic world, where you have some very, very rich people, and then literally billions of people that are falling farther and farther behind. We see it in this country, but we see it even more dramatically if we look on the global stage. And so I think the populism is a sense of anger and fear uh, by people who feel that the world is passing them by. They used to be, have some sense of hope and that they had, a, they had skin in the game. I think increasingly we see people feel that it's not working for me. Let's tear down the existing order, which is a very dangerous thing. So,
1: so you, you, th- you think that um, populism and nationalism are stemming from the economic factors rather than ideological ones. Because, you know, when I look at uh, countries like India, the rise of Modi, um, you, you know, you've got uh, hardening of uh, the, 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 the religious boundaries uh, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, much more prominent now than they were, say, 20, 30 years ago. How do you explain uh, that in this context of ec- ec- the economics? Uh,
2: Well, I think the two are actually linked. I think one of the things you find is that people who are feeling frustrated for whatever reasons, they've lost their job, there's a sense of insecurity, um, are looking for people to blame. And it's always easier to blame the other. And that takes the form of somebody who doesn't look like me they, they're of a different race, a different religion. They're immigrants. Um, we see in so many parts of the world, people assuming that migrant workers or migrants, people coming in from outside, are the cause of their problem. Um, and so you have leaders, whether it's Modi or Orban in Hungary, or frankly, the president here, who are exploiting that anger and fear and stoking some of those Um, uh, prejudices. Uh, The prejudices are always there that, you know, human beings um, are in, you know, susceptible to being suspicious of people that aren't like them. But it's become a, a, you know, an art form almost of of autocratic governors to sort of play on those differences as a way of uh, generating support for their, for their, their control.
1: So so how do we take um the 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 idea of a universal declaration and and translate that to the business world um, y- you know you know how how do we create a framework for the business world
2: So as you said earlier you know the universal declaration was adopted in the mid 40s 46 to 48 Um, by governments for governments, Uh, led by Eleanor Roosevelt. It was an aspirational effort, I think a very important document that lays out some basic uh, obligations of states to protect their own people and the world community to make sure that they do. So universalized rights, everybody's entitled to rights by virtue of their humanity. It internationalized the debate. This is something governments talk to each other about. But there was very little, if any, conversation about the private sector. We were living in a different world. And again, we were living in the world where the assumption was that those states sitting around a table were going to figure everything out. They were the ones that were responsible. And we now know that that doesn't hold. You know, I want to live in a world where 193 states protect their own people. We don't happen to live in that world. And we're not going to live in that world for a long time. So then the question is, if this is now a subject that involves a broader set of actors, including the private sector, what do these standards mean for them? And businesses, I think, rightly can say, we weren't sitting at the table. This wasn't intended for us. And so we have to kind of double back and and make a, a, a kind of an effort to look at each industry and say what are the things that apply to this industry Um, and how do we bring business to the table to refine those standards to apply those standards to build metrics and means of evaluation businesses live or die on things they can measure they measure everything there's something called parsons law which says that everything that is measured improves and everything that's measured and made public improves exponentially. That's the way business operates. They need to have a clear framework. If it's productivity or revenue or efficiency, that's what they're doing all the time. And so what we're trying to do at NYU, and I think it's now becoming more, when we started, we were the first business school to to have a center on human rights. I was the first one to teach a course on human rights in the business school. Others are starting to follow, and I think the premise, at least for me, is I accept the global economy, globalization, that's the world we live in. I want business to succeed, but I want there to be high standards, metrics, and a way to evaluate performance so that companies that take these things seriously in their own industry and that are industry leaders are rewarded, and those that are flagrantly violating these things pay a price for them.
0: This episode is brought to you by ExperFi. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, ExperFi provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. ExperFi differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Exprefy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic. And can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Experfy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.experFi.com for more information.
1: What does the um, you know, conversation look like with the with, uh, with business leaders when, when you uh, encourage them to adopt or, or pay attention to human rights? What are the key questions that you're looking at?
2: Well, it's a bit of a roller coaster. I can't say we have one discussion. Uh, there are some companies that are, for one reason or another, have decided this is important. And those are the easiest, the most fulfilling conversations because you're engaging on the merits. There are a number of companies that want to pretend to be doing the right thing. They have a corporate social responsibility department. They do a sustainability report. They put out you know, a lot of public relations material saying they're doing a good job, but they're not. And then there's a significant number of companies that don't want to engage at all and don't pretend that this has nothing to do with them i call that a kind of 1980s or 1990s view you know we follow local law Um, our job is to make a profit in the shortest time possible That the greatest profit in the shortest time possible so we got three categories and a lot of our work is to try to strengthen the leaders the the first group the, the companies that have said we're ready to come to the table to try to get them to work with each other. They're natural competitors in the marketplace. These ought not to be issues where they compete, but where they reinforce each other. You need a collective action. No one company, even the biggest, can make the difference all by themselves. And then the second group, we're constantly trying to kind of nudge them to say, you know, it's not enough that you have a sustainability report or that you have a statement that says human rights. Um, we're much more interested in output, in performance. What are you doing? And how transparent are you about the way you're operating? And the third group, frankly, you know, the naysayers, uh, occasionally we call them out. Lots of other people are doing that. Um, I could give you lots of examples of that. But, um, you know, life is too short. You, there, you, I think you have to work with people that are somewhere in the game. A lot of the companies that come to the table have come to the table because there's a reputational crisis. Um, And so they they sort of scramble to figure out what to do. And the first uh, effort is to kind of try to paper it over with a press release or a public relations campaign. And when that doesn't work, then there's some internal process that says, maybe we've got to figure out what we're doing. So we have lots of examples of that. And those companies come ready to have the conversation. Occasionally, you'll have a leader, a corporate leader who just says, I believe in this. I'm going to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And that's, that's even better. Our experience is you need leadership in the top. You also need people within the company that are ready to begin to change the culture.
1: Do, do you have um, an example of a company that did something that really impressed you?
2: oh yeah there are lots of examples actually i'm not uh i'll give you a couple of examples in the uh, one in the tech sector we've done a lot of work with with microsoft and on the subject of ai i mean there are a lot of different places where they're doing things but they've been very forthcoming in recognizing that facial recognition technology um, is flawed when there are uh, when the when the technology um, is developed as it is by mostly young white guys, uh, it's quite good at identifying faces of white men. It's much less efficient or effective or reliable uh, identifying people of color or women. And so they've been quite uh, outspoken and out front in saying we've got to develop the technology to be better, part of it is thinking about who's in the workforce, who who are the engineers doing this, because there's obviously some unintended bias they tend, which is now quite clear. But they've also been uh, quite good in saying uh, we're not going to work with, you know, local police or others until we think the technology is strong enough. We don't want so many false results to result in improper arrests or convictions, et cetera. And they've called on their competitors to work with them. They've said, this is a problem for industry and government. That's an example of a company, mature company with great leadership, basically saying, this is part of what we do. We have to look at everything we do. What are the human rights risks associated with it? And then what's the right way forward? I'll give you one other example, totally different. Um, It involves Intel. Um, they were, uh, like so many other technology companies, they rely on natural resources uh, that come from, many of them from Africa, uh, including in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and there has, where there's been wars going on for the last 30 years. And the head of Intel, um, the CEO, got a letter from an advocacy group saying, you know, We've rated 60 companies and you rate 30th um, in terms of these conflict minerals. You need to do more. And he was ready to throw the letter in the wastebasket. And he thought to himself, wait a minute, I want to find out more about this. He went to all the people around him, the lawyer, the public relations people. They all said, throw it in the wastebasket. You know, why should we get involved in this? We don't know anything about the Congo. And he, he went home that night and he, I interviewed him and he told the story. He said, I went home. I thought to myself, I'm an engineer. I've been doing this 30 years. Um, this is an engineering problem. Let's be, I want to be number one. And they, he called the group up, the Enough Project. And two years later, Intel was rated at the top of the 60 companies. They put the time and energy in. Nobody forced him to do it. He could have thrown it in the wastebasket and life would have gone on he decided to make an investment to do the right thing as an ethical matter, as a leadership matter. He said, I'm running a big company. We're doing fine economically. This is part of our supply chain. I want to pay attention to it. I give you lots of examples, but those are two in different spheres that are representative of what executive leadership looks like.
1: That's very helpful. So uh, you you touched upon um, AI and automation. So we are in the fourth industrial revolution. So how do you think about the in- industrialization from previous eras and how you know today's era compares to that?
2: Yeah, this is I think maybe the most all of these industrial revolutions are pose both great opportunities and challenges. I think this one poses probably the greatest opportunities and the greatest challenges. And so we can see that our lives have been changed the way we work, the way we learn, the way we, um, debate issues, the way we communicate with our families. All of that is enhanced by new technologies. It's made business more efficient. It's created opportunities to advance, uh, medicine and, and science. So all the positives scream out at us. You can't look, you know, imagine the coronavirus without the internet. You know, our, our, our ability to communicate with our families or to figure out what the heck's going on or when to wear a mask, all of those things. We, we, we are now addicted to technology to help us find our way. And in lots of ways, it's made our lives better and, and, and richer. On the other side, it's obviously causing great disruption, and you know, not the least of which is what I, I gather you're working on, which is the subject of you know, the changing nature of the workforce. And so companies, again, understandably, are looking for efficiencies. It's more efficient for a machine to produce something than it is for 20 people to do the same thing. It's faster, it's cheaper, maybe get a better product. There's lots of mechanical jobs or uh, administrative jobs that can be, again, replaced, you know, accounting and uh, secretarial work. There are a range of things that just get easier. And so there's a logic in the business space to say, let's figure out how we uh, find a machine to do the things that are redundant, repetitive, and what it's doing Uh, with, uh, again, understandable what's motivating it, but what it's doing is hollowing out, it's changing our economy quite dramatically. The numbers are overwhelming. And what you see is a lot of kind of middle, lower middle jobs, some of those administrative jobs, some of the farm jobs are now being eliminated. And people are being either driven, those people are being driven to lower wage jobs, and on the other side, other people are being uh, elevated to uh, the high, uh, higher jobs, higher paying, higher status jobs. So we see, and we see more of the job elimination is with women. It's more rural than urban. Um, it affects disproportionately people without a college education. 65% of the people in the United States don't have a degree from a four year college. Those are the people and the, for those people, wages have stagnated, and they're now more and more facing job elimination. I, again, I don't have all the numbers, but it's pretty dramatic. And we can see in the next 10, 15, 20 years, there's going to be a dramatic escalation of what we've already seen happen today. And so we, we, you know you don't hold back progress automation ai is progress it's done a lot of good for our society and will continue to do so but we need to be thinking business needs to be thinking government needs to be thinking how do we mitigate the risks and the damage and make sure that we're holding firm to notions like the universal declaration of human rights which provide that people ought to have a decent life they ought to be treated decently they ought to have health care they ought to have you know, a decent job, et cetera, et cetera. We can't, we can't just mouth those words. We have to figure out how do they apply in the fourth industrial revolution. So, so the, the, the
1: world of work is changing. Uh, you've got remote work and the gig economy as growing trends. So how do you think about uh, labor rights and human rights in the context of this new economy? What are, what are the challenges in, from your perspective?
2: Well, I think that one of the most important challenges, a lot of what we've worked on uh, is in response to what I call outsourcing of responsibility. And so we live in a world, again, you know, business, Peter Drucker, all these business gurus for years have been talking about the value of outsourcing labor. Um, You outsource janitorial work at at Harvard or the people doing the in the cafeteria Um, and if you're running a garment company or a toy company you outsource production to india or uh china or bangladesh or someplace um it's cheap you're getting cheaper labor you don't have to worry about all the oversight there's no osha Um, and so again there's a there's a business logic to outsourcing but if it comes with outsourcing of responsibility and saying, that's not our problem. We don't own it. That's where the problem lies. And I'm talking about it in the the examples I give are in the manufacturing context. The same thing would be true for those companies dealing with natural resources, the mining companies, farming, fishing. It's even true in the tech sector. We've done a lot of work looking at what we call harmful content on the internet. Uh, disinformation, hate speech, and the like, Um, and it turns out that Facebook and Google and Twitter outsource responsibility for what they call content moderation. We're about to put out a report on that. Um, The fact is that that's their business. That's their core business. Their sites would be a total mess if somebody wasn't moderating content, but they hire firms who have people in Ireland or you know, Estonia or Mumbai, who are going through hundreds of thousands of things on the internet and making judgments about what stays up and what gets down. You can't outsource that kind of responsibility. If that's what you're doing, you have to take responsibility for for the activity and you you have to own it. And that to me is the biggest challenge we face. And I see it all the time across every industry.
1: So you, you you touched upon the the the, the content uh, and social media, and uh, and we've seen that debate arise this past week with uh, uh, Twitter marking President Trump's tweets, you know, and and uh, uh, as inaccurate, and then you've got Facebook saying, you know, we we want to allow for any kind of freedom of expression. Um, and, and interestingly, this week uh, was uh, the anniversary of an attack on. Uh, uh, Sick houses of worship in India, and Facebook disallowed the hashtag #sick, uh, and, and uh, there was an outrage uh, amongst rights groups. And so, so you know, when, when we see these companies have massive amount of power in how they moderate uh, and regulate our content. So how do you uh, th- think about that uh, from a human rights perspective?
2: Well, we've, I would say over the last five years, we've probably spent as much time with Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, discussing exactly those issues. Uh, And those are part of the roller coaster I described. We we have good days and bad days in those discussions. The companies have been, let's take Facebook as an example. Uh, Facebook has been enormously financially successful uh, and largely on the basis of a strategy of growth. Um, what they tell their investors is that we now have 2.3 billion users around the world, and that pump pushes up the stock price. But many the 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 service is not growing particularly quickly in the United States or France. It's growing in its affiliates, WhatsApp or uh, Instagram in brazil and india and south africa and and nigeria that's where the growth is and yet the company is making money <clears throat> as an advertising uh, platform and the advertising is largely in the united states and western europe and so there's a disconnect between the, comment, the their assertion that we're growing and again, their responsibility for taking seriously what's going on in the places where they are growing. And so they're not, <clears throat> in 2014, I'd worked a lot on Burma on Myanmar when I was in the State Department. And a number of my friends in the country started telling me that the army of Myanmar was weaponizing Facebook uh, against the Rohingya Muslims in that country. There was a campaign to marginalize them and attack them in various ways. And I went to friends at Facebook, people I knew at Facebook who I'd worked with. And I said, I, what, are you, what are you doing about this? And they said, we don't know about it. I said, how can you not know about it? And they came back and told me that nobody in the company spoke Burmese. Now here's a country with 50 million people 93% of the people who use the internet in Burma get on through Facebook. They, when they talk about the internet in, in Burma, they talk about Facebook. And the company had nobody paying attention to that. And, you know, if you fast forward four years, the UN called it a genocide. And now, to their credit, too, too late, but now there's a whole team of people <clears throat> at Facebook who speak Burmese who are monitoring what's on the site. Uh, The problem is, you can't just wait until there's a genocide or where there's a massive problem to deal with it. You have to have people um, who are on the ground, who know the situation. You know, you mentioned India. We've had the conversation with them about, you know, why isn't there an Indian, um, you know, a national manager for Facebook in India? Um, Modi used, uh, WhatsApp is a, a very effective campaign tool. He's used it as you've suggested it in, in a range of ways against various communities where he's you know, not happy. They've done all kinds of crazy things in Kashmir. And the company said, somebody at the company said to me, you know, <clears throat> it'd be hard to find a country manager because we, it's such a big complicated country. We don't know who we would pick. And I said, do you think Citigroup? would say we can't have a country manager because India is complicated? I mean, that's the world we live in. And that's sort of our point. You've got to own, you've got to take responsibility. If you're going to operate in India or Brazil or any of these countries, you've got to basically say we're going to be part of the society, the fabric of the society, and respond responsibly if things are going on that undermine our community standards. Now, the companies have made progress. I don't want to de- go too far on this, but the companies have made progress in saying there are certain kinds of things they're not going to allow. Child pornography, hate speech, um, bullying, uh, things that are deliberately distortive of elections. There are a range. There's a range of categories where they've said, we're not going to allow this. But then, and this is the problem we had last week, they apply that in a irregular and and inconsistent fashion. And so, you know, obviously, uh, it's complicated if the the person promoting hate speech or distorting the electoral process happens to be the President of the United States. Um, But that was, you know, that was Twitter's um, assertion, basically, we're going to follow our rules. And I think they did the right thing.
1: So um, from a future work perspective, any parting words for our audience?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I don't, again, I, I think I try to think that I'm living in the real world and in the real world, uh, as you said, um, the nature of work is going to change for millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, That's just the, you know, we're going to live in a world where there's more automation, where there's more reliance on technology, where some people are going to be more um, uh, easily retrained if they lose a job. You know, if you're 23 years old living in Seattle and you have reasonable computer skills and you lose your job, somebody can train you to do the next thing and you're going to be fine. If you're 58 years old and you're working at a tool and die factory in Sandusky, Ohio, all those jobs are disappearing because of automation, because of, again, outsourcing. And so we've got to, I think, be uh, smart about what are the tools available. Um, it's some part training, it's some part ensuring that people have uh, their core necessities taken care of. We can't assume that when somebody loses their job, um, they're going to have health care. And so I think there needs to be, one, an honest recognition of what the challenges are. And this falls both on government and on private companies. You're automating this line. What does that mean? Who's involved? To what extent can you retrain, redeploy? And if not, what are the alternatives? So I think an honest discussion, transparency about what's really going on, what's at stake, And then this effort, I think, combining what government can do and what the private sector can do. We tend to say, if it's a big complicated problem, the government's gonna handle it. And as I said at the outset, we face governance gap, including in the United States. Increasingly, we say, we see the government not, you know, the government hasn't even been able to figure out how to get protective equipment to people in hospitals. And so we're seeing increasingly governments not living up to their potential or their responsibility. And that means inevitably the private sector is gonna bear a greater share of the, of the burden of trying to figure out how to move forward. I see companies aware of this, trying to deal with it. Lots of companies again say, we're gonna outsource responsibility and leave that for somebody else.
1: Thank you, Professor Fosnorth. Uh, what an enlightening conversation.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.